was like I was from the 1990s. They were ripping it up. There was dust in the air. There was four or five herd bulls bugling. If you took all the late rifle tags for just elk in the whole state of Utah and you added them all up, they would be less than one unit in Arizona on one late hunt. I told them, I said, your application is ridiculous. You got, whoever designed this program needs to be fired. A lot of guys grab their binos and look at them. By the time they look at them with their binos, it's too late. Get your rifle up. You got to throw it in the scope and you got to find in the scope. and You got to be ready to pull the trigger. Hey guys, this is Travis McClendon with the Guide Life TV and you're listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. Our culture needs people that are leaders and not people that are waiting for somebody else to show them how to do it. Those fields of tofu, that was formerly habitat for wildlife. You're killing off wildlife by being a vegetarian just as much as a hunter when he kills a deer. I'm like, well, you see that bush right there? (laughs) There's your bathroom. (laughs) My dad wears a Levi jacket. He sits in front of a sagebrush and he tells me the best camo is hold still. Not to Donnie Vincent this, but be relentless in everything you do. Don't crap out. Go back to the truck with excuses or whatever. Okay, assume I get a deer. How do I cut it up to fit into a Honda Civic? Just get outside. Just get outside and go. Because once you do, it's all gravy from there. Hey, this is Zach Griffith. This is Hannah Barron. This is Jason Phelps of Phelps Game Calls. Hey, guys, this is Cody Rich from the Rich Outdoors podcast. What's up, guys? This is Chad Mendez. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey, all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, brought to you as part of the Waypoint Podcast Network. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com All right, y'all. Thank you for joining us this week. Make sure you head on over to iTunes or Stitcher. Leave a quick rating or review for the episode. This week, y'all, I have Travis McClendon of The Guide Life, uh, Zero Guide Fees, and Arizona Elk Outfitters. A very busy dude. Appreciate him taking the time out of his week to uh, sit down with us. Travis, thanks for joining. You bet. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, we were uh, introduced by Mike Atterbury, uh, built for the hunt. Uh, how do you how do you know Mike? I met Mike at the hunting expo, oh, maybe three four years ago in Salt Lake City. Uh, we were 
showcase some zero guide fees in our booth and uh, one of the vendors and he came up and was kind of asking about what we did and I started talking to him. I asked him, what do you do? And he's like, I'm a videographer and hunter and a couple other things. And I said, oh, great. So you do videography? He's like, sure. And I'm like, well, do you want to start? I'm looking for a hunter slash videographer that knows how to hunt. And um, would you be interested in videoing our, a new idea of a show that we have called The Guy Life? And he's like, yeah, that would be interesting. Uh, I've got a couple other things going on. And I said, well, I'm serious. Like, I need you for seven, six, seven hunts right now, this up in the next two months. Of course, he didn't think that I was serious. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of guys promising that. And I'm like, yeah, I could use you. I, I said, if you're good, let me give me your stuff. I saw his stuff on YouTube. I'm like, absolutely, let's go to work. And he said, okay. And I, I said, send me six or seven contracts and we'll do all these hunts. And uh, that was probably, oh, I don't know, four years ago. So yeah, we've been doing hunts together for the last three or four years. That's awesome, man. And we will, uh, we will get into the show in just a little bit, but I would love to kick it off with just maybe a, an introduction about, you know, who you are, what you do. And I'd really love to hear how you got your start into hunting. Like what inspired your kind of journey into the outdoors? Sure. Well, I'm originally from Arizona, uh, as, as most people know. And if you don't know, um, you know, we have some of the best animals to, to hunt in the country when it comes to mule deer, coos deer, elk, desert bighorn sheep and antelope. Uh, many guys would love to come to Arizona to hunt. Obviously, it's very hard to get drawn because most of that is on a lottery tag system. But we started, uh, I was just born and raised here. My dad started hunting when he was young and, um, it kind of carried over to me and my brother and we've been hunting. I've been hunting since I was 10 years old. So I shot my first ammo when I was 10, got into that. And my dad got into guiding, uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, and basically just started hanging out with him and going on these hunts. And I just got addicted, especially when I shot my first uh, animal with my bow. Uh, my dad got into hunting. I remember him waking me up. Oh, I don't know, maybe midnight or so me and my brother shared a room we're only a year apart and so he woke us both up and he's like hey i got you guys a gift i got your present he woke us up i'm like you know we're half asleep we must have been i don't know nine ten years old and there was just these bows that he had bought they're little simple recurve bows with these wooden arrows and the fletching and the little tips on them and i just remember thinking that was the coolest gift ever and we shot those things so they broke and um just that was kind of this my start into hunting and archery and just wanted to be like him. And he introduced us to that. So that's how I got my start hunting. And then, you know, I went off to college and I would come back in the off season. My dad would be guiding and he'd ask me, you know, if I wanted to guide. So I'm like, I absolutely, you know, to get paid to hunt's even better. I mean, what better, <laughs> what better <laughs> job is there out there? <laughs> so that's kind of how it started. I started guiding when I was 18. I've been guiding for 30 years now. Uh, me and my dad became partners for several years. And then about 10, 12 years ago, I bought him out, changed the names and just split the companies up into different names. So we have Arizona strip guides. That's all of our mule deer and desert bighorn sheep in Arizona. And then we have Arizona elk outfitters that we do all the antelope and elk hunts with. So those are the two guiding companies, you know, and I owe a lot of credit to my dad. I mean, my dad was a pioneer in Arizona. My dad was a pioneer in the Western big bulls. 
don't know if you've ever seen them. Maybe your listeners have, but if you've ever seen any hunting videos from the eighties and nineties, they were my dad. So like he owned North star production video productions. And he started, he was the, one of the very first, if not the first to make outdoor videos uh, from his guiding and hunting expeditions and turn those into VHS and start selling them through a company called Stony Wolf Productions. So that was really big. And I used to, you know, haul the camera and stuff for my dad back in the day. And back then they were giant beta cams and the batteries weighed as much as, you know, a 40 pound backpack. So they needed a <laughs> mule. <laughs> I, I grew up actually, uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the old beta cams, but I grew up uh, having to haul around giant VHS cameras for my dad, uh, not for hunting, but uh, he used to do a, a lot of film work. And I was same kind of thing. I was always his always his assistant. I'd work the second camera or I'd carry the batteries or the gear and stuff like that. So I, <laughs> I definitely feel you on that one. Yeah, it's funny how the younger guys always get roped into that, huh? <laughs> but you know, it's, it's funny. I think about that and you know, I mean, back in the day, sitting in a dark production room, doing reel to reel editing for VHS tapes, uh, on a, on a video toaster and all of this stuff, little did I know kind of what that would turn into today. I mean, I don't do full fledged video production or anything, but I, I do a little bit here and there and it inspired a lot of my love of, of media and getting into without you know without realizing it until fairly recently it 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 kind of all started right there yeah but uh it's 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 funny you know thinking back at how quickly all that stuff's changed and you know now we've got got our iphones which (laughs) you know throw in your back pocket and you can create cinema style uh films practically exactly well back then it was a love-hate relationship none of the software worked like they meant it to said that it was going to be you know and we were rendering hour and a half videos and freak you you know you get an hour through it and then there was a hiccup and then it was shut and crash you know shut down and so it was a love hate it was irritating back in the day but you know back in the 80s and 90s that's just what you did and now yeah now it's a it's a dream (laughs) so much easier i mean it's like the generic software you can you can i mean you can edit film and edit just about everything you need. You can color correct. You can produce audio all from a single phone. It's wild. It is absolutely wild. And even, even talking with a lot of the guys that, that do, that have, you know, fairly successful YouTube channels that make some high quality stuff. They're like, yeah, you know, use my GoPro and I just always make sure I have the newest version of the iPhone with whatever camera upgrades they have. And Mm -hmm. Gosh, that's 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 crazy to me. It's come a long, long way. And back in the day, it was just a full on job. Uh, I don't even know why my dad, he just had a hobby of doing it. But, you know, uh, Bugling, I think Bugling Big Bulls was the first episode they ever made. I think that it was aired in 1988. And I remember uh, one of the greatest scenes, a giant 400 and back then 400 inch bulls just didn't exist. I mean, people weren't harvesting them and it wasn't definitely caught on camera. I remember that bull coming across 300 yards on the meadow on a string. Um, you know, back then in the eighties, the calls, the bulls were a lot more susceptible to calls. And, uh, he came all the way across the meadow, all the way by himself, left all his cows and they got all the way to the edge and they shot and just remember shooting them all on video and stuff. And that was kind of like the, 
the turning point, the highlight of how that all started. And, you know, they did that for 20 years. Um, and then I kind of took over the companies and we abandoned that for a little bit. And now we're kind of now ramping up, um, you know, with the guide life. So it's, you know, come full circle. And I, you know, I owe a lot that that to my dad and my addiction and my passion is definitely <laughs> hunting. And that comes from him. And I just went out with him last year. He's 70 three still hunting with the bow. We went to the Ponsagon over here in Utah. It took 25 years for him to draw it. And I got to hunt with him over there. So I've had a lot of unbelievable times with my dad uh, and my family just being out in the woods. And that's something that hunting really, really allows you to, to have that a lot of people don't understand unless they've done it is like spending time with your family in the field. Hunting is just it's great. It's better than a lot of times, better than vacations that you might take once or twice a year, but we're hunting five, six, seven times out of the year and spending years and years with my dad out in the field. I've had some great, great memories and great stories and opportunities that we've had together that I'll never you know, forget because hunting, having that as the vessel to get us out there together. You know, it's, it's 73, man. That's awesome. And that's, Anytime anybody asks me, it's like, okay, why do you work out? Why do you try and stay fit? It's, it's not, yeah. I mean, to some extent, it's so I can be more capable during the, during the season and, you know, not worrying about uh, how far I need to go in to get an elk. That's true. But a good chunk of it in the back of my head is always going to be, I, I try and stay fit. So when I'm 74, I'm still going to be out there with the bow, with the rifle whether it's chasing bugles or chasing deer or bear or whatever the heck I happen to be hunting, wherever I happen yeah. to be at, like that's more important to me than anything. I agree. We, we guide a lot of older guys. Some are capable and some are not. And I, I do guide a lot of guys are waiting to get drawn for Arizona. And because of that, they're older just by nature, but um, they're great. And I took a guy that was 84 last uh, maybe two years ago and he's still doing it. So I'm like, man, I hope when I'm 80, I'm still be able to do what he's doing. So I agree. I, I, I do the same exact thing. Try to keep in shape, try to be able to do it. You know, I'm going to be 50 here in a couple of months. And I'm thinking, man, I really need to cash out some of my hunts and my bonus points that I have in these Western States. Cause I don't know, you want, you want to maximize your hunt. But so I'm teetering on, man, I want to draw a trophy area, but I also don't want to be too old not to be able to hunt it. So like, where do you cash in and go for it? You know, it's, so. it it's an interesting balance. You know, it's like you said, do you, do you just kind of hold out for the best possible hunt and not be able to enjoy it or be as effective on it as possible? Or do you cash it in for maybe a, a hunt with less trophy potential or whatever that happens to be? Uh, it's like, where do you find that balance? Yeah. Well, if I know now, I, I probably would have been hunting a little more. I, I've been fortunate. I've been able to give a lot of my tags to my kids because in Arizona and some of these Western states, you can give your tags away to your kids. And I'd much rather see them hunt than me. But that being said, I've also probably, now that I'm older, I'm more about the hunting experience than just about the size of the animal. And so I probably would want to cash in more, but I will tell you, the longer you're waiting to get drawn, the more you don't want to just cash it in. You're like, screw it. I've already been waiting this long. I might as well wait for the best. And then as soon as I get that tag, then I'll, I'll settle down and start just hunting more now that I'm getting older. So I'm still waiting. I've got a lot of points in Utah and Nevada 
in Arizona. And I'm, you know, I'm just now getting to the point where I really want to draw those before I get too old and I can't maximize that hunt. So we're going to start hunting here pretty quick. Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely get that. You know, you mentioned that Arizona, whether it's elk or mule deer or desert bighorn or, I mean, it's some of the best hunting in the, the Western U S I mean, it's, it's kind of the, the pinnacle of what everyone's hoping to hoping to draw and to anyone outside of kind of this Western hunting culture, you say that and people would almost look at you and be like, Arizona, like mm-hmm. what? Huh? <laughs> Cause I yeah. think, you know, there's this picture of Arizona is like Phoenix or, right. you know, and, and that's about it and everything's yeah. like that. Um, yes. That happens a lot. We have a lot of guys that they don't have any idea that Arizona has, you know, half the, half the state's mountains. It's just all the people live in the desert. So, you know, we do have some awesome game. Now there's some, and there's the nice thing like about Arizona, like I'm pretty intimate with Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona. I've guided, I've hunted in all those. I've been applying, you know, people for those that want to hunt. And I've been in Idaho, I've been in Colorado, and I will tell you that, you know, Arizona, for the most part, for non-residents who want to come, they have the one of the better systems in place for guys who want to come. Yes, they have that high trophy area that takes more years to draw because they're not going to give out more tax. It's kind of, it's a circle, right? It's a double-edged sword. Guys are like, man, I don't want to wait forever to get drawn, but they want to go after a trophy. And so the only way to keep a trophy is to limit the tags. So it's got to be managed in a trophy manner. And what's funny is the more trophies guys harvest in there, that drives more people to put apply, which creates more competition, which creates a harder to draw. And the harder it is to draw, the more people complain, but the more people are trying to get drawn because the more trophies are killing out of there. So this is a nasty cycle that goes around in Arizona. But I will say, on the flip side of that, Arizona does have a lot of good hunts like deer and elk that give non-residents multiple opportunities to get drawn sooner rather than later if you so choose. Utah doesn't have that. Nevada doesn't have that. New Mexico doesn't have that. So, and those are usually the four big ones when we're talking about, you know, elk and deer, uh, sheep and antelope. And so the nice thing about Arizona is they do give all those tag allocations. For example, if you looked at Utah, if you took, look, you took all the late rifle tags for just elk in the whole state of Utah and you added them all up, they would be less than one unit in Arizona on one late hunt. So we're talking about in one unit in Arizona on a late elk hunt, they would have more tags available or they give out more tags in one unit in Arizona than they do in the whole state of Utah. So that's the difference, right? They do give you opportunities. Now, are they going to be the best hunting experiences you've had? It's because I can just hear people's voice. Like when you hear when what you just said, Arizona provides this quality of hunt and it's awesome. And there's probably guys that have come out to Arizona and been like, uh, I didn't experience that. <laughs> I, my hunt wasn't that good. And that, you know, it's all it's all relative to what unit you got, what hunt you got, what weapon you got at what time of year you went hunting. So I'm just saying that the late hunts, there's more tags given out in those late hunts after November. And so you can get drawn sooner rather than later, which is great. 
but at the same time, is that hunting experience going to be as good as an early rifle hunt in the rut? No, but at that early rifle hunt, it's going to take 25 years to draw. That late hunt is going to let it could be five to seven years to draw. So the nice thing, what my guess, my point is that Arizona does give you that flexibility. Well, and one of the cool things about Arizona is I feel like there's, you know, again, there's opportunity to kind of push your tags out a little bit and, and kind of angle for that, for that better opportunity. Um, but one, you, you have a chance to draw regardless. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I mean, shoot, I drew, I drew unit eight on three points, not the best unit in Arizona, but I looked at my credit card and I had to call three people to actually confirm because it was so ridiculous that I, I think it was a less than a 1% chance for me to draw that unit, but I still did. Right. And that was, uh, shoot, did I hunt that? I want to say 2020 was when I hunted that, uh, um, that archery or rifle that was uh archery archery okay, rut hunt. Nice. Um, got my, got my first elk went down with John Stallone, well, and you know, John, of course. Uh-huh. And, uh, I think, uh, the podcast you did with John, he actually was referencing my hunt at one point in the podcast. Nice. We were talking about, uh, chasing all, all the, the elk were sitting on these kind of, um, I guess islands almost, you know, they're like, they're little like peaks in and of themselves. And they're all these separate little islands and they just run around these, the tops of these islands in circles. You couldn't bugle at them to save, <laughs> right. like you bugle at them. They just pick up and start running around the Island and you try and catch up with them. And you just right. had no chance. Yes. That happens often. You know, the competition can be fierce. So you start bugling and they don't want another elk to another bull to come in. They'll take off on you. Well, you know, you kind of mentioned earlier that uh, when you were talking about uh, your dad's films, you kind of mentioned like, oh, yeah, that was back when they were, you know, more susceptible to bugling. Has it, how bad has it gotten compared to kind of back in the heyday, if you will? Oh, man, it used to be. And I think that's kind of ruined a lot of guys' expectations coming out to Arizona, at least hunting with us. They've watched those videos for so long. And back in the day, uh, in the eighties and nineties, not, there wasn't a lot of calling. There wasn't a lot of the mouth diaphragms. Uh, there wasn't a lot of the, you know, all these call, hand calls now that you can buy and the elk hadn't never been screwed with. So there were definitely, you started punching on a cow call. They were definitely coming in <laughs> and, um, it was fun. You know, you get set up and you got an elk bugling out there four or 500 yards. You start cow calling and they'd come in on a string and, and that's kind of what we videoed and that's what we shared in the late eighties, early nineties. And, um, and then guys started applying and started calling, you know, I, to this day, I've got guys calling, I've seen all your guys' videos and, um, you know, I've been waiting to draw so I could go with you. I mean, that happens to this day, but that what they've seen on those videos in the early nineties typically is not what's happening today. Now, granted, there's always exceptions to the rule and there's always a bull that'll come in and yes, you can call in the satellite bulls that don't aren't aware, um, as much, but those satellite bulls will call, they get called in, they get that mess with three or four times and, they get four or five, six years old. They start getting wise to the call and they want to see you before you see them. I mean, they want to see you come around. If you're cow calling to me, I want to see you come to me and they'll sit out there 150, 200 yards, but they're going to be in the cedar trees. You're not going to be able to see them. If you went to unit eight and you're hunting down low, you're in those cedar trees. You can't see through those cedar trees and save your life. So they want to see the cow come to them. So they'll stay out there about 150, 200 yards waiting on you, but to have them come in 
and you're a herd bull, it does happen, but it just doesn't happen nearly as often as guys think from what they've seen in these videos and some of the old YouTube stuff. It just doesn't happen anymore. They're, they've been messed with too much, too often. Uh, every type of call, every situation, hunters get out there, even when they're camping or messing around with them and, and screw around with them, and then they get pretty wise pretty fast. I mean, you know, everyone, everyone wants that exciting, almost romantic, you know, notion of the, the angry bull coming and crashing in, you know, snorting and spitting and ready for a fight and, you know, comes into 20 yards and screaming and like the whole everyone wants that experience. And the more I've kind of come to realize, and I think that's somewhat of the expectation new elk hunters have coming in. I know that was to some extent, my expectation, I've never had that experience. I've heard bulls like really bugle back aggressively. Maybe like I could probably count the number of times on one hand, you know, typically it's typically it's kind of a, a lazy bugle that you can tell is moving off because they're taking their cows and leaving. And so like the more, the more I've come to realize is it's really just not as, as beneficial to, to bugle. I, I mean, I, I, again, I've only been doing this for five, six years at this point, uh, you know, being an adult onset hunter, but from what I understand, it's just not an efficient way to hunt elk anymore. Bugling, at least not how it used to be. Yeah. I, and I think there's, there's places like Nevada where they don't get messed with. They don't have nearly the hunt pressure. They don't have nearly the hunt numbers. I think there's places in Utah, uh, New Mexico, not really. I mean, yeah, there's the Gila wilderness where they can definitely not be wet mess with as much, but in Arizona, unless they're coming off the Indian reservations or the park, they, they really know what's going on. And now there has been some, and I will preface this because the rut has been earlier and earlier in Arizona instead of later and later. And it's what happens is, especially like if you hunted in 2020, you're in the first week of September. That's too early. It, the season in Arizona is two weeks long. And usually that second week is going to get better. And even that third week, if they let it go another week, it would be even better because the later it gets in September, the better the rut's going to be on typical. Now, la last year in 21, and you hit, let me tell you something, in 2020, it was good antler growth, but man, it was as dry as it's ever been. Oh, we didn't have any monsoons. There was no water. And I really feel that the cows didn't come into estrus and they didn't really... I think mother nature has a way of kind of holding things off when things aren't looking good. And I really, they were really looking bad in 2020. I was, I was in nine right across the street from you, from Williams on the other side there. And that's unit okay. nine. And it was, uh, it was bad. I mean, I didn't hear a bugle for five, six days, nobody in camp killed. And it was as bad as I've seen it just because it's dry. Now, if you'd have drawn a tag in 2021, <laughs> You would have been, this is a night and day difference because whatever they didn't do in 2020, they made up for in 21. Cause when we got out there opening morning, Oh my gosh, it was like, I was from the 1990s. It was, they were ripping it up. There was dust in the air. There was four <laughs> or five herd bulls bugling the opening morning in unit 10 last year. We were, I kid you not. Mike was there. He was videoing it. You got to ask him about it. There was three herd bulls, probably somewhere between 20 to 25 satellite bulls and about 150 cows all together within 100 yards. And we were in the middle of it. Now, in Arizona, that this doesn't happen. This isn't Colorado where there's a ton of elk everywhere. This is 
Arizona. We don't have the elk herds that these other states do, but it was amazing. Like it was, it brought me back to the early 1990s, how it was that they didn't give a rip. They weren't looking at anybody. They weren't paying attention to anything. They were fighting. And <laughs> that's why you get in those moments. That's I'm like, this is why we hunt for those moments like this. Now, did we, we could have shot 10 elk, 10 bulls that morning. But of course we were going after the two biggest and they were fighting and there was elk going back and forth. And it was a neat event. We videoed the whole thing, but that was awesome. This just doesn't happen as often as you'd like to anymore. And unfortunately you drew the 20. So I want to apologize for that because it was bad. (laughs) Well, it sounds like all the, all all those bulls, they're like, man, I didn't get laid for, for an entire year. I'm going, I'm going for it this year. (laughs) They made up that you're a hundred percent right. They were rutting in November in 21 because they didn't do anything in September and October. That's how bad it was. Cause that's when the rain came and the feed came better, mm-hmm. but yeah, they made up 21. They were like, you know what? We didn't rut that hard in 20. We're making up for it. So we'll see what this year holds. But last year was pretty amazing as far as rut activity. Well, I mean, yeah, it was, I, I have nothing to complain about, about that year. I got my first elk, you know, John, John kicks some ass for me. He really worked his butt off to, to nice. get me my first elk, you know, he and I have, he and I have been buddies for, for a long while now. And when I drew that, I, I immediately had to give him a call be like, guess what, <laughs> right. guess what we're doing this year. And, um, you know, I mean, we got it done, uh, within the last eight hours of the last day, you know, I mean, it was a, nice. a hard fought battle. Cause I mean, you probably remember how it was, you know, they were cagey, they weren't talking. I mean, the ones that would talk, they'd bugle twice, you know, come seven o'clock in the morning, maybe eight. If you were lucky, they were just, you didn't even have the, they were done bugling before the light was out. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was a hard fought year and I should have known that it was going to be, I have a, I just have a record with Arizona at this point where it's every single thing I've hunted down there, every success I've had, it has been, you know, two two weeks of just struggling and then on the last minute of the last day it happens my javelina again it was like the last ditch effort i was about to go home i'm like all right one last trip out me and my buddy got like the lone javelina in the in the entire area uh my you can see my monster mule deer here behind me he's uh he's he's pretty pretty huge that was uh that was my my first tag i ever filled was a muley up uh that was on the over-the-counter archery tag in Arizona. Nice. And again, same thing, getting ready to go home basically, you know, the next day. Like, all right, one last-ditch effort. It was last 10 minutes of shooting light, and I managed to get one, get that guy at 50 yards. Nice. So it's been – It's I should have known that in Arizona going in, my elk hunt was going to be – it, it wasn't going to happen until the last minute of the right. last day. That's typical, right? Oh, man. Just happens. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop midwayusa.com so um kind of what i was i was starting to get at earlier before i got distracted was one of the cool things about arizona is 
yeah, you, you can be putting in for these larger tags and you always have an offer. There's always an opportunity. There's a chance, however slim of drawing them. But when you're putting in for Arizona, there's so much other opportunity to hunt while you're there. So it's not, it's not like a lot of States where you're effectively just donating, you know, donating your fees for a few years until you happen to get drawn, you know, with Arizona, you, you buy that license to apply and there's over the counter opportunities. I mean, there's Havelina, there's a, there's a, a ton of really great hunting opportunity that you can get effectively every single year in Arizona. Yeah. The OTC is nice. A lot of guys don't know about the deer. So they have a three week season starting the third Friday in August. Uh, it's probably going to be like the 19th this year. There's three weeks there. And then they have, you know, the January hunts and December hunts. Um, I think to start December 9th and they run all the way to the end of January. They changed them a little bit this year. They are capping and you mm-hmm. probably know this, but in, in a lot of the units, they're going to cap the kill rates. So if they meet those numbers and the hunt gets shut down once they meet those numbers. So that'll be good. I think for the most part, that'll be good. That keeps a lot of the trophy deer, you know, the older deer old. And um, a lot of people love to hunt the OTC hunts because they have an opportunity to kill some mature deer. And the only way you can do that is the more big deer you kill, the more you flood it, right? With more guys from out of state, oh, it's OTC. Mm-hmm. So everyone just over the counter comes over and you can really ruin a hunt really fast. Um, it's kind of like gold rush, right? You're you find a little bit of gold, everybody runs over there, they get all the gold out of there. And then all these towns are abandoned when it's all gone. And that's kind of how these OTC hunts can get. Everyone runs over there and floods it and they can kill out the deer pretty quick and it become really bad, really fast. So by capping it, I think this is going to have more sustainability, keep uh, the herds good and keep the maturity good. But yeah, they have the javelina, they got the mule deer, you can do coos deer. And then, like you said, they have the, uh, you know, random, and I'm guessing most of your listeners are non-residents of Arizona and Utah's built the same way, but they give 5% of the overall tag allocation for any given unit uh, to random. So there's always a chance for, and that's just non-residents only. So there's always a chance for the non-resident to draw in the random drawing, which gives it, it's better than Colorado system where you got to have preference points and you got to have X amount of number of points before you even have a chance to draw. So you have zero percent chance of drawing until you meet that number. So Arizona, I think does the best of both worlds. They reward you for having the most bonus points and have, and 5% of those are going to go to the guys with the highest number of bonus points, which is every year you put in and don't get drawn you get a point. So that's nice for those guys that have been doing it really long and it's also nice for guys like you only drew with three points and you drew in that 5% random. So they give both sides a chance to draw and keeps you coming to the table. And that's nice. Plus the opportunities that come along with it. Yeah. I definitely so, think the States that do bonus points like that to where it's, you have a chance regardless of, you know, it makes you want to still come play the game versus like you said, Colorado, I don't even want to build points in Colorado. Like what's the point? Uh, no pun yeah. intended. You know, I'm, I'm not going to bother. I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a 20 year old kid that's going to, that doesn't mind putting in for the rest of his life for one hunt kind of a thing. And so I don't, I don't even want to play the game Yeah. Uh, versus, you know, I think, I think the, the bonus point system really 
balance as well, you know, especially uh, where there's always a chance. So it's worth me applying rather than just buying preference points. But uh, like likelihood is it's probably not going to happen. But when it does, <laughs> right. it's, it's a really nice surprise. Well, we have all the statistics. Uh, the guys like our members, our zero guide fee members, a lot of them use have me do their applications. And we have a lot of insight knowledge as far as the number statistically wise, what your average wait time is going to be in these units. Yes, you can buck the trends, but you know, if a guy says, Hey, you know, I, I want to have this time frame, and I want to hunt with this unit and I are this weapon. And this is the kind of size of bull I'd be satisfied with. Then I can kind of try to put them in some units that I know traditionally, because we have the numbers, we have statistics, we can say, okay, this is your average wait time. And you could draw it sooner because you have less competition. This is a really good hunt under the radar you could draw sooner rather than later. And buck the odds because there's less guys applying for it and so everyone is on a different you know everyone's on a different path has a different story is looking for something different some guys are first-time guys just want to go and some guys are pretty knowledgeable and they know what they're after so we kind of try to fit everyone's needs and arizona does allow for that and you know you i mean i i i've been doing this a long time and i i've got a lot of applications we do for a lot of guys and you 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 look at all these units and the numbers and everything. And I think Arizona has taken the, the best. I think they could get better on some things, but I think, you know, there's great things in Utah. There's great things in all these other States like New Mexico and Nevada and Wyoming and Colorado. And you take a little bit of what you like and put it in your state. And so I think they've done the best. When you're talking about bonus points, max points, you know, random draw they've done a good job having trophy hunts having any hunt you know just guys a lot of guys are meat hunters they want to get the meat they want to have opportunity to go hunt and so arizona gives you that as well and some other states do too but arizona's done a good job of giving you trophy hunts but at the same time giving you meat hunts hopefully it fits for everybody no i definitely i I agree with that. There's a lot of, a lot of very good balance in the state. Um, you don't, you know, I mean, yeah, you'll always hear a lot of complaints regardless. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. It doesn't matter how it can be the perfect system and somebody will find reason to complain. But I feel like of, of, of most of the places I hear that for the amount of opportunity available to people, to non-residents, I feel like I don't hear a ton of complaints coming out of Arizona about the system, about the draw, about the opportunity, anything like that? No, the the worst thing about Arizona is their online application system. It's an absolute disaster. Um, yeah, it's been a little rough. A couple, it's terrible. Years. <laughs> it's terrible. They're, the way they do the draws and how they manage their animals, I would give it a B, B plus. Uh, the opportunity they have as far as their application process online and what you have to do, <laughs> the number of clicks you have to do to get through that thing. And like, for example, how come you can't have just a simple cart where you can just put your animals in the car oh, and pay geez. once at the end? You can't do that in Arizona. You got to do a one for species. Every and if you're applying for you, one differently. every <sighs> single one. And if they're applying for you and you're applying for your family and your friends, it takes you an hour to do four applications. It's ridiculous. So don't even get me started on Arizona's application. I'll I freak out. We do I thousands of them. That's why. 
I completely forgot about that. And every year it irritates the shit out of me because it pardon yes. my friend, it irritates the hell out of me because I, I, I forget about it. And then I go in and I'm like, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like the, when I, when I apply for Montana, I just go down the list and like, check it all add to cart. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm the, I'm the guy I apply for just a little bit of everything. And yep. uh, yeah, well, no, Nevada, Nevada has an amazing system. It's so easy. It's very intuitive. It asks the right questions. You just got to answer them. You check out. It's easy peasy. I mean, you got to understand, we do thousands of these applications for our members, right? So I know everything pretty intimately and I get feedback from the, my administrators who do this for me. <laughs> and then you get to Arizona and it's a freaking, it's always a debacle. It's always a mess. It always takes forever. They're always pissed off and complaining. And I don't blame them. I, in fact, I called up their administrator. I called up their technical division and I'm like, man, if you guys were trying to set a record for how long it takes to get through one application process and how many clicks and how many questions and how, how many um, they have these redundancies, questions. And I'm like, if you guys are trying to set a record, congratulations, <laughs> you achieved your success. You achieved your goal. I have never seen in the course they're offended when I say that, but I'm like, your, your applications, I told them, I said, your application is ridiculous. You got, whoever designed this program needs to be fired. Anyway, I <laughs> didn't like that. Too how, much. how do you really feel about it? Yeah, <laughs> Don't it's crazy. You know, you can stop well, holding back. Yeah. Well, <laughs> give me another hour. Cause I could really break it down if you want me to, but I don't think you're, <laughs> Oh, I think, I don't, I don't think that is within the scope of this episode. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Arizona's great in a lot of ways. And a lot of these Western oh, states yeah. are great. They're just one thing they're not great at is getting their crap together on the applications. I mean, it. you know, I don't think there's, there's, well, maybe Nevada. I haven't applied to Nevada, but uh, I mean, I know even Montana, like there's, it's, it's not horrible with Montana, but they're not great at explaining the differences between tags and it's like okay the sportsman's license with bear without bear but then there's this sportsman's license and then there's uh this conservation thing you need to add on but do i need to add it if i buy this one and then there's the permits versus like montana gets pretty complicated and they're just making it more complicated this year and we won't we won't talk about kind of how they handled the, yeah. the draw this year and they sent uh about how they sent licenses to a lot of people that didn't uh didn't draw licenses. Well, it's good to hear that, that, that there's other States that don't have it, that don't have it all together either. <laughs> but yeah, I'll take, I'll take a good opportunity and a bad, uh, a bad application system versus yeah. an awesome application system and bad opportunity any day. Yeah, me too. I agree. So <laughs> on a completely different topic, um, you know, we were talking about, Again, it, Arizona has like up where I was hunting unit eight, kind of that high desert area. There's a lot of times you'll be up there and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. You'd be walking, walking down a trail and be like, I'm in Montana right now. Like you would not be able to, you would never guess that you're in people's general picture of Arizona. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, having both that and having more of the, the kind of, expected lowland desert climates do you see 
a lot of difference in the behavior of say like the muleys like the kind of the mountain muleys versus the desert muleys so the desert muleys are definitely definitely different um in fact i just they they gave a new muley hunt last year and my best friend here at david Rhodes, and we went down there and hunted um and they never have given out tags before that that was really fun different you know i've i've hunted mule deer uh down in mexico and i've hunted them on the southern border of arizona definitely different they're different species of deer too smaller smaller body definitely don't need the water that you see up here i mean being able to run trail cameras up here so i hunt I hunt all Northern Arizona. So we're in the Kaibab plateau and Arizona strip. So that's where I do Mm -hmm. all, those are the trophy areas. And that's where we do most of the guiding where I've been most of my hunting. Uh, then we'll do all the OTC hunts in the middle part of the state. And then we'll do the, we have Southern, uh, desert mule deer and they're just smaller bodied, typically smaller mass. Um, their habits are definitely different. Um, they, the way they get water, the way that, what do they eat on, it's almost kind of like a whitetail, like a, a whitetail from Kansas or Canada and a same whitetail from Mexico, right? If you went down to south of Texas, you have these small whitetail, same species, just a different subcategory species, I guess. You got these giant ca- Canadian eastern whitetail, and then you go down to Mexico, you get these small eastern whitetail that are just built different. So the strip deer are definitely the biggest body deer you've ever seen uh, when it comes to mule deer. Have giant ears. Uh, it's not uncommon to get if you laid out the ears from tip to tip. It's not. It's, it's not uncommon to get twenty eight in, inches across Jeez. to thirty. Um, the Kaibab deer are going to be around twenty four to twenty five, and then if you go down to the desert, you're looking probably twenty two to twenty four. So that's kind of the difference on the size. In fact, I went to Mount. The strip deer are crazy. So you, I went to Mount these sheds that you found, and then these skulls, right? So. We have a lot of times when our client kills a big, maybe 230, 240 inch mule deer, we're going to want to make replicas. So Steve Stainer, by the way, if anybody wants replicas done, he's the best in the business. He's down in Phoenix. Um, Steve will make our replicas for us and then send them back. And we cut these skulls out and the skulls are also fabricated like the antlers, but they're fabricated from the actual skull that's from the deer. And then you can buy these aftermarket you know, skulls that go around that are supposed to look like a European mount. So I bought all these online. I bought all the biggest skull plates they make. They're not plates. They're actual skulls that go around the base of the antler to make it look like a European, make it look like an actual skull of a deer. And none of them fit the strip deer. Uh, They're all, they come in seven inches and all the deer that from the strip need nine inches uh across from uh from the eye sockets and so we had to fabricate the actual make the actual skull you know to make it look like an actual deer because there was nothing nobody makes a a skull big enough in the country for those mule deer so that's the difference that we see in the body and size and so we're kind of spoiled over here i live in saint george right now and i'm looking at the arizona strip and so i'm kind of spoiled where i'm at having some of the best mule deer in the world you know right by my house (laughs) Jeez, I, I I don't think I've ever even seen a mule deer like of that caliber. I mean, again, you know, I've only been doing this for so long and 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 whatnot. But I I don't imagine I've ever, short of maybe YouTube, ever seen a, a mule deer of that size in the wild. Well, um, it ruined you. 
That's for sure. And then now that they got rid of these cameras, you know, we've been using cameras for so long. It, it Some of the hunts are bad because we've passed up a lot of great mule deer because we've shown trail cam pictures to clients and ruined them. <laughs> and so they would normally shoot that deer, right? They'd be like, oh yeah, I'll take that deer. But now that you've shown them a picture of a potential deer that they could shoot, now they don't want the other one. And so, uh, I don't know that my competition uses cameras. So I use cameras, but I think now that Arizona has gone away from cameras and we're not allowed to use them for the aiding taking of game, this will be the first year that that's happened. So we'll kind of see if all the guides and outfitters play by the rules and see how that goes. But I would really love just to get back to hunting and not worry about the cameras. And if you see a really awesome deer, that's 200 inches, let's just shoot him and be happy with it. Yeah. <laughs> let's not judge it. I've, I've had that conversation with a few guys before uh, talking about trail cams where they're like, you know, it's not all, you know, it's not all roses. Like it's not all like, Oh yeah. Here's, here's like the smorgasbord of deer and you just get to pick one and that's the one you're going to kill. No, half of the time. Yeah. It can ruin your <laughs> practically ruin your hunt because a deer, you know, you'll pass a deer that you would have been perfectly. Oh, you would have walked home and talked about for years. Yep. You know, you pass by that just cause you, you know, there's that one deer and you know, you never even end up seeing it, but right. But there's a chance and we're going to hunt it. And then, I had a guy a couple of years ago. It was like, I showed him a 260 inch buck that everybody had double drops, trash everywhere. It's like, if you could create a buck and build a buck, it would be like, this would be the buck that you would want in your, I mean, this is a once in a lifetime, just amazing deer. And of course I showed it to him. He's like, okay, he was a zero guy tree member. And he's like, okay, that's the deer I'm going to hunt. I got 10 days on this hunt. That's what we're hunting every day. And I'm like, okay, if that's what you want to do. He goes, I've been putting in for 22 years. I'm okay to go home without a buck. I've killed a lot of big deer. I'm like, all right. His name was Terry. I'm like, that's what we're going to do. And we got over there and didn't see him the first day. Didn't see him the second day. Didn't see him the third day. And we weren't the only ones hunting him. I mean, there were some other outfitters <laughs> in there. And we had five other guys, a clients in camp. And four out of the five guys were trying to hunt this deer. I mean, we surrounded the area. We were looking high and low for that deer. Didn't see him on the fifth day, sixth day, seventh day. Now we got three days left. Right. And it's, it's just funny how quickly guys mindsets change when the reality of actually not killing a, an animal or a deer after waiting 22 years starts to set in. <laughs> and he come he came to me on the eighth day. He's like, maybe we should go look elsewhere. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, why? I thought we were like all in on this deer. And he's like, well, we haven't seen him. Nobody's seen him. And I, you know, I think we should go look elsewhere. I'm like, that's fine. And I said, that's fine. But you know, that's guys intentions. And I, that deals, I deal with that a lot. Like a lot of guys, like I'm fine to go home without a deer. And it's so funny how quickly that changes when you get down to the actual where the rubber meets the roll and they actual think that they're not going to kill a deer and they've waited this long and then they start changing <laughs> their tune pretty quick. And so he ended up like, we ended up going somewhere else and we ended up killing a freaking deer on 1030 on the 10th, the last day of the hunt at 1030. And actually Josh was there helping me on that hunt. And uh, he got very, very lucky, very fortunate. Ended up being a 219 inch deer on the last day of the hunt. So I'm glad we pulled off. It worked out in the end, but it almost 
You know, it almost costed him. He almost went home with nothing. But that happens a lot because of those stupid cameras. Uh, so, uh, you know, you mentioned you had a, a few few guys. Into, how often do you end up like in a situation like that where you get a really nice uh, buck or bull on camera and you maybe have multiple clients with the same tag? Obviously, you know, different different guides. Um, how often do you end up with? guys all chasing the same bowl or the same buck like that? Um, well, for the deer, it's different because they, they're more patternable, especially out here on the strip. There's not a whole lot of deer. Uh, it's big country, but with the, with the cameras, you were able to pattern them a little better. Elk, you can use the cameras too, and you can pattern them. But the problem with elk, they got in that rut and they'll, as you know, they'll go three, four, five miles in a morning, and then they might do a giant circle, a 20 mile circle, and you don't know where they are the next day. And they're going to water at 10 different locations. These deer out here on the strip, 75% of the deer, they don't leave for the rut and they'll stay around the water that you got them on in the summertime. So, you know, they're around there. It's just a matter of turning them up. So, uh, it does happen where we'll have guys that'll come out and say, okay. And I show everyone back when the trail cameras were going on, I would lay everything out. I told all the customers, I'm like, listen, nobody's going to have favoritism in my camp. I make sure that, cause I've been on yeah. guided hunts where I felt like I was getting screwed, right? Like they're favoring that guy or this guy and they're showing them where it is. And I feel like I'm getting, you know, sloppy seconds. And I, I don't want anyone in my camp to feel like that. So we'll lay it all on the table and say, here's all the bucks we have or all the bulls we have. You know, some guy might be after a typical, some guy might want a non-typical, some guy's never killed a deer before, so he doesn't really care. Some guy's killed 220 and he wants a 230 and wants to go only after that one. Sometimes we'll need two or three guys to really cover the area. And if we get two or three guys that agree, say, okay, listen, here's the deal. We're all going to try to hunt this buck for seven days or this bull for seven days. We're going to surround it. Whoever gets the freaking first shot is going to kill it. Are we all in agreement with that? And everyone will be like, yes, if you're not in agreement, then you're not hunting the deer. We'll go somewhere else, hunt something else. And usually I've never had an issue. Like in 30 years, I've never had an issue with somebody complaining about that. As long as you lay all the cards on the table, you tell them what you got and you give them the ability to do it. I've never had a problem with it. Not at all. So, but when you try to be coy and you try to like hide stuff and try to keep stuff away from other hunters or they come out back in the field and you found a big buck and you're not letting anybody know because you found a really big buck, they catch on to that. And it's not, it's not cool. So I try, <laughs> try to alleviate all that by just being real open and honest with everybody. And it seems to work out better that way. Nice. Um, so, you know, you're kind of talking about how the big bodied kind of high uh high mountain muleys versus the the smaller desert muleys they're almost like they're their own separate species you're kind of saying that um how do you i'm assuming because of that you would hunt them differently like what do you see as far as like the difference in strategy hunting some of these high desert or these mountain mountain mule deer versus maybe some of the desert muleys well, I don't have a lot of desert experience. I've done several hunts, but I haven't done, you know, 10, 15 years of hunting the deserts compared to the mountain. The mount, where I'm at in the Kaibab and the, the Strip, where I hunt these, they're, they definitely are more palatable. They like to stay within a three-mile radius, typically. 
yes, there's exceptions to the rules and you'll get about 20, 25% of the bucks. that will go six, seven, eight miles to rut. All of the deer over here where I hunt always come back to the same watering holes in the summertime, all of them. I mean, wherever they summer at, they will be back. That's a fact. <laughs> Unless they're dead, they're coming back. The desert seemed to me, they like to wander a, a lot more. Um, they seem like they have a bigger area. They have less water down there. They restore the water. They're able to, to eat the cactus and stuff that gives them nutrients. And they're able to wander a little more. And they, they, they seem to have a bigger roaming or areas they live in because maybe there's not as many deer and they like to rut and move more. I, that's my experience. Um, the nice thing about the desert is you can glass a lot more. Like there's a lot, I guess it's a negative and positive. You can glass a bunch of country down in the desert where I was down by Ajo, Mexico, by Ajo, Arizona last year. A lot of nice hills you can get on a lot of glassing, just a lot of places with no deer in them. So you, you got to have access and you got to be able to move. Um, it's awesome country to glass in, but there's not a lot of deer. And I think a lot of those deer, when they go to rut, they move a lot. Uh, I think the summertime they stick close to the water holes because it is, it is hotter and they're more patternable, but I don't have, as far as that goes, I think that they move a lot more and they're actually, I think they're harder to find than the deer that I'm dealing with. It makes a lot of sense. Like it's when the deer are going to be more sparse, uh, they're going to be traveling a lot more for that rut. And you're probably going to be sitting glassing, doing more spot and stock. Do you do, um, for the stuff kind of in the, the strip and the kaibab, do you tend to do a lot more ambush hunting or sitting water or uh, things like that? The kaibab, you know, like you were saying, it's uh, it's all ponderosa pine up top. Uh, you got the aspens, ponderosa. You can get up to like almost 9,000 feet over there. And then you can drop down to about 30, uh, about 5,000 feet. You can get down into the cedars and the sagebrush. And that's when that late rut hunt, is so effective because it's so open down there and they get off the mountain into that open country. Um, in the summertime, there's a lot of water up on the Kaibab, not so much out on the strip, even though there's a bunch of cattle ponds out there that the Cowboys have made. But if it's dry, uh, those deer are really dependent on the trick tanks and meaning by trick tanks are the tanks that the, they're made for by sportsmen. They put a fence around them so the cattle can't get in on them. Wildlife can come in. There's a trough and um, a float on it. It's a little trough and it's, you know, fed by uh, an apron and that apron's all corrugated metal. So when it does rain, it hits that metal, goes into a big, huge holding tank. And then from there, it's floated into a little trough. And as the water gets drinking, it's, you know, that float makes water come into that trough. So you got this big holding tank. Those are very important for even like unit nine for elk in Arizona in the strip, because there's just not, there's no rivers, there's no creeks, there's no springs. So the sportsmen and game and fish have gone out there and made all these trick tanks for these deer, mountain lions, you know, all the wildlife minus the cattle can drink off them. Well, what happens is they're all like dependent on this. So they're not going to travel much. And then the monsoons come and they fill up all those cattle ponds and then they really move. And now every cattle pond out there has got water in it. And now they're able to move and move around. And that's what happens in the Kaibab a lot. There's a lot of deer out there, but there's a lot of water so they can move anywhere they want. They're not, you know, have to be around the, 
like the strip deer have to be around those trick tanks a heck of a lot more than the kaibab deer do just because it's not as high you're the strip you're talking about yes there's black rock which is about eight thousand nine thousand feet uh but most of that is really desolate deserty country and those deer are really dependent on those trick tanks and the kaibab you have way more ponderosa pine aspen the whole plateau is above you know, 6,000 feet and the water's retained a lot more and there's a lot more prevalent water up there. So those deer are really hard to hunt and hard to pattern. Plus you got all the ponderosa pine coverage. You could find a deer today and not find them for the next 10 days because he might be three ridges over and you can't glass any of it. You got to actually still get out and still hunt it and walk it, you know, and locate them. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. So here's a, here's a question for you that uh, every time I'm listening to a podcast and they talk about like spot and stock versus still hunting, they're like, Oh, you know, they talk about still hunting and then they're like, Oh, is this still hunting? And the guy's like, Oh no. And they never actually define what still hunting is. <laughs> it's not <And> still. <laughs> I can tell you that. It's, you know, they say, uh, but it's also not kind of exactly like spot and stock either. Right. Uh, so what, how would you define still hunting? Okay. Well, let's define spot and stock. So spot and stock is exactly what it is, right? So we'll get a pie or an area that you can glass uh, with your binoculars a long way, potentially, you know, it could be 300 yards or it could be three miles. It could be 10 miles. You want to get up high. We have Spine scopes and BTXs will get up. Depends on what we're glassing. I'll get up real high and glass the crap out of the country that we can. I mean, some of the areas for elk, we're glassing five, six, seven miles away looking for yellow dots. Um, so that's spot and stock. Once we find something, we either going to try to get closer by getting over there by vehicle or walking. Um, and then we're going to get in close and try to. So like OTCs, right? There's a lot of spot and stock. I'll be up on a hill. I'll even have radios, which are legal in Arizona, and I'll radio to my hunter and try to lead him into the animal to try to put an arrow in him. So that would be your spot and stock. Or we, we're up on a hill. I got a buck that's down there. I'll take my hunter off the hill with a rifle and try to get in close and kill him. So that's typical spot and stock. For still hunting, what we do, especially on the Kaibab, there's burns up there. There's real pine, piney, uh, ponderosa pines where you can kind of see 100, 200 yards. And so what you do is you just very diligently, slowly, methodically walk the forest. So what we'll do, or the, 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 when you think of a burn, you think of everything completely wide open, but up there on the Kaibab, the burn has a lot of logs that are laid over, but also has a lot of uh, trees that haven't fallen over that are just burned. So it's very thick even though it's open. So you, a deer could be standing there at 150 yards and you can't see him because he's not moving. And you've got all this dead fall there. Plus you got all these dead trees that are propped up with a lot of foliage, um, like old burns and stuff. So when I say still hunting, we'll go a hundred yards, nice and methodically. I'll be looking out in front of me. I'll be looking for any movement at all. 
I'll get to a place where I can glass out in front of me 100, 200, 300 yards and try to pick up the deer before they see me. That's what we call steel hunting. Then I'll go another 100 yards, nice and methodically. I'll look up. I'll go 200 yards. I'll go up to a, you know, a ridge after ridge. And you're just, you're not blazing through, just walking at two miles, three miles an hour, you know, just walking for the, for hiking purposes. You're trying to find the animal before they find you, but you got to cover ground to do it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so it, it's really just the, the stock without the spot part. <laughs> just a lot slower you're stalking an animal without knowing it right you're like you're trying you're acting like an animal like a buck is close by without really knowing if there is a buck close by so you're just trying to go next ridge climb up the ridge nice and you look down you're glassing left to right and like okay nothing's within me a couple hundred yards i'm going to do the next ridge so i slowly walk up to go to the next ridge and that's really the best way to do it. And a lot of times you can find those deer before they can find you, or you might find them at the same time, but at least they're giving you a chance to shoot. The problem with still hunting where we do it at, you got to be quick on the trigger. You got to be, you can't have the gun on the, you know, your slings over your shoulder. You can't, you know, you can't be dinking around with your binoculars. You got to let the guide or whatever do that. You've got to be able to find the deer in your scope. You got to have that scope turned down to three or four power. You got to be, if I say, Hey, there's a deer, you got it. You, you can't look at your, <laughs> a lot of guys grab their binos and look at them. And by the time they look at them with their binos, it's too late because the deer see you. So you've got to get your rifle up. You got to throw it in the scope and you got to find in the scope and you got to be ready to pull the trigger. If I say, shoot them, it's a shooter. You got to be ready. I mean, cause what, like what kind of distances like, you know, in those Ponderosas and stuff, I mean, it's you're not getting get. more than 40 yards, are you? Yeah, it's going to be, oh, it definitely could be a hundred yards, 150 yards. And I oh, tell you'll, guys get, all the you'll time, get that far. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cause those Ponderosas don't have, I mean, when you're talking, talking true Ponderosa forest, a lot of times where I'm at, there's not a lot of other types of trees. Um, sometimes there is, and it's thick, but the Ponderosas don't have low hanging branches. So you can kind of, you can see 150, 250 yards sometimes. And okay. you've got to be able to shoot off offhand a hundred yards. You got to practice it. There's so many guys that come to camp and like, I'm good. I shot a hundred, 200, 300, 400 yards. Well, they shot off a bench. <laughs> I, yeah, I shot, but I, I had my rifle uh, strapped down in a bunch of weighted sacks <laughs> and on a sled. <laughs> yeah. I, I tell them, I said, run a hundred yards, come back to your gun, throw it up and try to shoot winded. Because mm-hmm. sometimes that's where you're going to be at, you know, shoot on your butt, shoot on your ground, shoot standing up, you know, you shoot different ways because how often do we know it's hunting? This isn't freaking, we're not going to get out the table in the sandbags and the animals stand out there for you while you get all set up. <laughs> I just had the best mental picture of that. It is this big old, just muley sitting out there and, Folding out the legs of his table right. and get up, like, setting I it up, velcroing down his, his, his rifle to the, the back. Right. <laughs> I, took oh, out this, I was telling you, I took out this older guy and he's a great guy. His name's Richard. I took him on a strip hunt and he waited 23, 24 years. He's 83 years old and somebody sold him this long range rifle and he had used it maybe on a coos deer tag, which for coos deer, it's fine, but it weighs like, it was way too heavy, you know? And I, and I said, we're going to be doing a lot of hunting. We might see these deer are going to be running. They'll be running off the road. 
So I just, I wanted to know what his plan was to shoot this freaking giant, <laughs> it felt like a 50 cal, <laughs> like rifle. What's our plan? How are we going to shoot this thing? And he's like, well, I go, if we see a buck off the side of the road, just standing out there about 150 yards, because it's very possible on the strip to do that. What's our plan of attack? He goes, well, I thought I would get out of the truck. He's like, you carry a chair in the back of the truck. <laughs> and when we see him, you grab the chair, set it up for me. I'll get the tripod, set the tripod up, and then we'll get the rifle set on the tripod and then I'll shoot. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, well, none of that's going to happen. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, none of that's going to happen. So I'm like, can you shoot this thing offhand? Cause if that deer's out at hundred yards, you need to get out of the truck. You need to get off the road and you just, because the sagebrush is five feet tall. There's no way you're doing anything else, but shoot offhand. Yeah. You know, the guy had an 18 pound rifle. He, that wasn't happening. You know, he was 83 years old. So I gave him my rifle, which was six pounds and said, if we get off, if we see a buck off road, just, just use mine. Okay. And he's like, Oh, okay. We'll use yours. But I just felt, you know, it's one of those things where it's not, it, it's not going to work in a real hunting situation. It's just not going to work. And these guys, same thing with what we're talking about. You don't have a bench. You don't have, you know, you don't have time. You're not in perfect, you know, breathing mode as say we're at 7,000 feet. We're walking these hills. We're humping these hills. You're going to be winded. And have you practiced it? Have you practiced shooting winded? I guarantee, I guarantee you, you haven't because <laughs> they don't guys don't shoot. Like when I shoot my bow, you know, how many times are we climbing a mountain or you're, you're hiking after these elk for two miles and finally get an opportunity. And how, how many times are you perfect in perfect shooting position with perfect weather and perfect breathing hardly ever, but yet that's how we practice in our backyards or out on the, in the shooting. Right. So no wonder guys miss because they don't practice in real life situations. I tell them, I said, you need to run down a hundred yards, come back and then pull your bow back. You need to pull back on your knees. You need to pull back on your knees and then try to stand up. Cause I've been in that situation where you pull back on your knees and now you can't see over the brush. And now you actually got to stand up with the bow pulled back. And that's a heck of a lot harder. So, you know, all these situations come into play because that's how it's actually going to happen in the real, in real life. Well, I mean, and shooting under a, a time limit as well. That's exactly. one thing, uh, you know, when I was practicing for my elk hunt, the John uh, was drilling into me because he took me out to a spot right before because I was really nervous. I was getting really into my head before my hunt. And like, I was, I was just not confident in my shooting. I was doing, I was shooting just fine, but I was not confident in my shooting and that'll, that was messing me up. And so he, you know, he took me down, put me through some drills. And that was one thing he had, he'd have me go to full draw and then like set my bow down on my, just on my leg kind of and wait and wait. Nice. Nice. And then he'd be like, basically he'd be like, there it is. And I'd have to get up. I'd have to acquire, you know, the, the foam target and, uh, yeah. and shoot within, uh, I can't remember how long he was giving me, but you know, a second or two. And that was, that was huge. And the same thing yeah. with, same thing with rifle, you know, um, uh, working with somebody or even having like, there's apps that where you can just set your, uh, set an alarm to go off at kind of a little random time. And you can use that to, get up, acquire your target and 
yeah let it go there's 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 ways to train for that and and i i'm guilty of not training for that i mean i I do a little bit better you know i don't shoot off a sled or anything but you know i'm pretty often in a nice prone or seated position i'm taking my time you know i'm taking like six minutes for three rounds kind of a thing um well how many guys are like i'm you know i'm like you're gonna shoot your bow today no no it's windy i'm like okay well you do know when we're out there hunting it's gonna be windy like you need to learn how to shoot in the wind. You need to learn how to hold your bow still. There's a lot of things that guys want the perfect scenario. And then they get out there and then they, Oh, I got to hold my, I, I pulled back my bow and I waited for 45 seconds before he cleared the tree and I couldn't hold it back anymore. And I just swung the arrow. Like you were saying, holding that bow back for a long amount of time and then trying to shoot. Cause that's what's going to happen on mm-hmm. your hunt. So those are important things to do in practice. That's one of the best tips I got from that hunt. Other than the fact that I'm way too loud all the time. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't realize how loud I was until I was hunting with somebody that reminded me. Uh, <laughs> but one of the best tips is because, I mean, you know, you're into it. You draw back. You've got it sighted. You're just following that bull, you know, with your sight on, you know, sight on it. And you're looking through your sight. You're looking through your sight. And you, you're sitting there for like three minutes, you know, <laughs> or whatever, fully drawn, like with it up to your face. Yeah. Knowing full well, that bull's not stepping out. Like right. the best thing you told me, he's like, yes, yeah, stay fully drawn. Just set that, set the bow, like set your cam down on your knee. You obviously you be safe about the whole thing. Keep that tension on but don't be jacking up your support shoulder by sitting there trying to hold that bow and focus looking through the site. You're going to go blind before you, before you get that shot off. Yep. But coming from a guy who's obviously been there, right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's especially well with how windy it is up here in Northern Montana. I mean, it's basically like Iowa where I live in this part of Montana. Um, It is just flat and open with a bunch of farm fields And so it gets windy up here and I've had to sit and hold a lot of you just in practice sit and hold a lot of shots when this wind gusts and I used to just let down. I'm like, no, no, I'm going to hold it until I have a time to take my shot or, or there's other times where I'll try and shoot, uh, uh, do some Kentucky windage for the wind kind of a thing. Um, And yeah, I don't know. It's just finding those, finding those opportunities to practice like you will in the field. I think you're right. Is, is absolutely critical and too often forgotten until the last yeah. minute. But, well, it always, you know, inevitable it's a woulda, shoulda, coulda. And, you know, when you come out here, you might only have one, one chance. And so you really, you know, human error is going to play in factor no matter how much you practice, but you're giving yourself, you're maximizing that trying to give yourself the best chance possible. And, you know, you don't want to be, you know, coming back to camp saying, dang, I didn't prepare for that situation, you know? So you like you said, you might, it's going to be a while before you get back to Arizona, could be or whatever. So you just really want to maximize it by, by taking, and I'm glad you talked to John and got it that worked out. That sounds like it really worked out. And I try to tell my clients that when they come out, you know, try to do it this way, practice this way. And then, you know, it's going to lend, you just don't want to be like, woulda, shoulda, coulda, I should have practiced, or I would have if I had had this, or if I'd have known type of deal. So, 
Absolutely. All right. Uh, so before we hop off, I want to give you a chance to talk about the show a little bit. Um, you know, the, the kind of idea, idea behind uh, the guide life. Well, um, you know, being hunting for 30 years, you know, especially in the, the, the day. Well, let me get there by saying that the guide life is basically the guide life TV, which is on YouTube channel. You can look it up the guide life with Travis McClendon. Um, basically what it is, is we are following our zero guide fee members on their hunting experience. Uh, what I mean by that is we take, uh, for those that don't know, our zero guide fee is exactly what that sounds like. For guys that are members with us, with our company, zero guide fees, they pay a small yearly membership. And for that membership, they get to come out when they get drawn and we pay for the hunt. So the hunt is on us. We're kind of like car insurance. So we're going to pay for the hunt. And what we've done with the guide life is we are 90% of the episodes are going to be us following our zero guide fee members that have done the process, right? They signed up, they applied, they got drawn, we paid for the hunt. And now we're going to show that experience to the public. And so what, that's what the guide life is all about. Um, Yes, there'll be episodes. Uh, we're on our fourth episode. In fact, we just had one launched three days ago. Uh, Nate Wright is a Zero Guide Fee member. He um, became a member, got drawn, and we followed his, and, and you get to see his experience. So that's what the guide life's about. There will be hunts where I go on. We're going to Africa next year. We're going to go to Alaska. I'm going down to Mexico. So there will be hunts that I get to do because it is called the guide's life, basically my life. But <laughs> My, uh, my number one goal is to give the hunts back to the hunter. And what I mean by that is we see all the prices increase, right? We got inflation like we've never seen before. Gas is more, food's more, outfitting's more, hunting's costing more. And it was already becoming a rich man's sport. <laughs> so what we're trying to do is give the hunts back to the hunters. And by doing this, we're able to get, we're able to pay for guys hunts. And because we're doing that, we're taking it from a rich man sport to an any man sport and woman. So that's what we want to highlight. And that's what we're doing. So guys that get drawn, we get to see their experience. It's really cool uh, because we're making it a white collar to a blue collar. So now anybody on any budget can become a member, get their hunt paid for and maximize their hunt. You know, I'm just thinking about guys, we got the deer draw coming out, which I probably should have remember. So Arizona, we've got the mule deer, not draw, but the application is in uh, seven days. It's on June 14th is the deadline for mule deer, coos deer and desert bighorn sheep. That's coming up. And I'm just thinking, you know, guys, what are they going to do? Are they going to, especially guys live out of state. Are you planning on going on your own? If you're planning on going on your own from out of state into the state of Arizona, how much is that going to cost this year? Right. I mean, you've got, it's so expensive for your materials, your hunting equipment, your gas, your food, having your, having your friends come out, and even help you. They're going to want some coin. <laughs> they're, you know, it's going to cost them. They're going to want you to pay for them. So it's going to cost you a lot of money, no matter if you do it on your own or if you even hire an outfitter like me. 
it's going to cost you money. So I feel a lot of guys this year are probably only going to be putting in for bonus points because they have no other plan. They have no other option. They're like, well, I can't afford to come out there if I was to get drawn. I want to get drawn, just can't afford it. And that one thing that has not gone up this year is our zero guide fee membership. It's still $349 a year. It's 90 cents a day. That's a great plan for guys. If you want to maximize your hunt when you're in these Western states like Arizona, Nevada, Utah, you can still completely and totally do that. Become a member. When you get drawn, I'll pay for the hunt. You don't have to worry about inflation. You'll get to come out and hunt. And who knows, we even might put you on the Guide Life TV. So that's what we do. Yes, I guide traditionally, and that's great for guys who can afford it. But if you want to get drawn and maximize your hunt and you don't have the budget to afford it, just become a Zero Guide Fee member. And if you do that before the 14th of June uh, for deer or sheep, um, we will take you out if you get drawn and you can start that process. And the great thing about our program is the longer you're a member, the more hunting days we pay for. So it's zeroguidefees.com. And then you can also go watch our members hunts at the Guide Life TV on YouTube channel. Awesome. So, uh, people can check out the guide life TV, uh, zero guide fees. Uh, if they want to find out more about you follow along with uh, anything else you're doing, where can they find you specifically? Yeah. So you could go to, um, my Facebook page, Travis McClendon there is connected to our other social programs. So we, our social, so, social, uh, companies, Arizona strip guides is the deer. Arizona Elk Outfitters is the elk. Those are our traditional companies. If you want to become a member, zeroguidefees.com. And if you want to watch all of this take place, you can do it on YouTube on the Guide Life with Travis McClendon channel. So that's all I got. And hopefully that's enough information to confuse everybody. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect, man. Thank you so much for hopping on today. All right, y'all, that'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com to get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. So, y'all, that'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this episode inspired you to get involved, get outdoors, and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from the Wild Initiative family, and more. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned... No matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6'8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.